ask, listen, but never give away responsibility for the decision that you're paid to make. Welcome to Growth Driver, where the best minds in B2B are redefining growth. Welcome to the show, everyone. John Common here. We are talking today about the role of the CMO, a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Uh, it's a pretty great title, Chief Marketing Officer. Kind of, kind of a cool title, actually. But what does it take to even become a CMO? Like, really? And what's it really like to succeed as a CMO, especially in the first two or three years of being in that role, given all of the major shifts and disruption and innovation that's happening in go-to-market and B2B and marketing? That is what today's show is about. This episode is going to be particularly valuable uh, to you if you are one of the three kinds of folks. One, you want to become a CMO sometime in your career. Two, you're currently a CMO and you occasionally feel like you're experiencing imposter syndrome. Or three, you're a head of sales or a CEO who's ready to really up-level alignment at your company. Now, uh, to help me unpack this topic, I've got a perfect guest. Uh, his name is Aaron Ballou. Aaron has been the CMO at Split for over two years. He came to Split from Ping Identity, where he was the global VP of demand. Before that, Aaron has held senior roles in demand gen, portfolio marketing, segment strategy. And interestingly, he has a background uh, in engineering, which he has a PhD in because he just evidently is an overachiever. Welcome to Growth Driver. Thank you for having me, John. Good to be here. Oh, man, I've been looking forward to this conversation and unpacking this. What does it really take to become a CMO? What does it take to be a CMO? And my first question for you is, uh, and we're going to, trust me, just, just we're going to, we're going to dig into all of it. But right off the top, what, uh, tell me the moment, call it the Dorothy, not in Kansas anymore moment, uh, when you said to yourself, um, I am not a VP anymore. I am a CMO. I guess I, the thing that pops to mind is I, I got some advice from my, my boss when, uh, when he was hiring me in to become a CMO for the first time. Uh, and a, a lot, several times in my life, some you know, well-meaning person has coached me and given me really arresting advice. And uh, this was one of those times. And, and he, he said, hey, Aaron, when I hire you, I, I need one thing you need to understand is that I'm not hiring you to be, you know, the best marketer in the room. I assume you will be the, a, a great marketer and you'll manage the function. Uh, but your job is the, 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 the last word in the title, which is officer. You're an officer of the company. You're here to help us guide this business, regardless of what the topic is, what the, what the functional expertise is. Like I need your mind engaged and I need you in, you contributing as an executive of the company. And if you come in just looking at things through the, the lens of marketing, then you are failing as a CMO. And, you know, when a person who you respect <laughs> says the word failing uh, in your general direction, I'd say it's really arresting. You know, like it, it definitely sent a little chill down my neck. And that's why it stuck with, with me. I think that's it was really important advice for me to hear. Oh, that's great. Officer first, marketing second, chief last. It's almost yeah, like you should be the OMC. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> Not the That's CMO. Right. So, I, so I try to do that. You know, I try to, I, I try to walk into the meeting thinking like, you know, if, if I, you know, as a shareholder, like if I were in, as an investor, sort of, um, you know, what do I care about in this conversation? Not just like waiting for the part that's about marketing and then go, oh, yeah, we could do that. That that's functional stuff. That's not executive stuff. So that's, you know, I, I try to manage myself. And actually, I'll tell you, I often fail, oh, you know, like yeah. like all of us do in life. Sometimes I do because I love marketing <laughs> and I hear that that trigger word and I'm like, ooh, ooh I know about that. Um, but still, it's just something you have to try to manage. And if you fall off the horse, you get back on. Man, first question. That's, we could, I, that is so great. That is, I'm sitting here thinking about that, what you just said. I'm trying to think if there's a better way to encapsulate advice for, for being a CMO. Like we should write a book called Officer Marketing Chief. <laughs> Seriously. Done. Seriously. No, man, I mean it because I'm sitting here and I, I've spent the last 20 years, uh, serving CMOs. I mean, and CROs and CEOs, but CMO has been, you know, and I've had a front row seat of seeing all flavors and levels of success in that role from people, to be honest. And, and one, if I, if I was going to think about one major piece of advice I would give, it would be, it would probably be that one, which is, which is, yeah, think about the business and the growth of the business holistically first, and then connect it to the marketing stuff and then don't forget your role as a leader. That's the chief piece. That's really great. Yeah. Hmm. When I was a, you know, I was an engineer for a long time, and when I was an engineer, I, I've changed my mind over the course of my life and career about many things. And one of the things I changed my mind about, but when I was starting out as an engineer, is I thought, well, you know, I'm an engineer one, and an engineer two should be better than I am at engineering. And I thought that manager should be a better engineer than the SE4 or the principal engineer or whatever. Like, why isn't the manager as good at this as the most senior engineer? And I thought that for a while. Um, and then I became a manager <laughs> and, and, I, and I realized, wow, that, that's not why I'm here. That's not why I'm here. That there, there's, there's a different set of skills that um, as a, what I thought at the time, a pretty good engineer, like as a good engineer, don't make me a good manager. They make me a good engineer and they help me be a good engineering manager, but not necessarily a good manager. And I think that that works its way up. Like there's a reason why the title changes a little bit. Um, and so I guess that goes all the way up to VP and CMO. Like the CMO isn't just supposed to be like the best at marketing in topic X. And, by, and at that point, you know, the, the scope underneath you, there's so many different tracks. No person reasonably could be the best at it, at everything, you know, um, and you have to let go of that. But at least when I was starting out, like I had a more narrow kind of worldview of it. And I just thought it, you, you kind of got to sequentially be a better and better engineer or marketer. I was so wrong. Yeah. No, <laughs> so, and so it, 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 that's like, that's the classic, one of, one of the major classic lessons learned and when, as someone moves from individual contributor to a, to a leader, right, is is um, my job is not to know everything better than everybody else. My job is to help accomplish, help this team or this organization accomplish its goals effectively and efficiently. And you said something, you, you and I, uh, uh, I really value our uh, friendship and relationship over the years. And, and, and you said something 
to me once that was the way you put it was so good. I, I'm going to botch it, but it was something like we were talking about marketing as a field, and you said marketing is a field made of other fields, in a way in a way that is tr- oddly more true than many other endeavors. Right? It's there's so it's so deep the the the, the, the the practice and not and knowledge base of marketing is so wide and deep, and 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 that is a hundred percent true. But in light of that truth, as a CMO, how do you navigate? What are some things you've learned to navigate? Um, oh, I'm in a pocket of my expertise. Should I actually be the smartest room? Maybe I am the smartest one in the room on this topic. Should I leverage it versus those other moments where it's like? I'm not the smartest one in the room on this, but I'm still responsible for it. Tell me about both sides of that, because they're both, they have pros and cons, right? There's the risks. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm learning as I go, right? And, uh, and I actually don't know whether being the best at a thing in the room is justification to exercise that and to take command over that topic. I'm not positive about it. So my... You know, my, my kind of framework in my mind for, for leadership is, um, you know, you're, you're, you, you got hired into the management job and you've got whatever, five employees or 50. And if you try to replicate you times five or 50, all you'll ever get is five X or 50 X you. And so however good you think you are, however right you think you are, um, you limit the potential of your team if you use yourself as like the gating factor. And so even in those few areas where I think actually I'm pretty sharp on a thing, um, I still try to take a step back and leave room to invite another person to sort of express their best you know, version of, of that path of that skill. Sometimes it's not just the skills you have, but also that moment in your life when you have like maximal energy and interest, you know, they may be in that peak moment where they really care and they're hungry about this thing. And I'm not anymore. And they'll, and that combination of their skills and their energy can bring something greater than what would have happened if they just followed my template. You know, so my, my kind of the way I riff with my team and I hope this is accurate. I hope they would back this up if if you ask them directly is I do guide them to try to confront the right questions to help them make good decisions, but ultimately make those decisions for themselves, you know, as long as they're relatively reasoned and then try it and back it, even if it's not what I would have concluded. And if I do that, then there's a chance it'll be worse than what I do, but it'll be, there's a chance it'll be better than what well, I Well, not only do, that, you're you know? helping them build capacity. For the next yes. time, because there will always be the next thing. And we, we love to mm-hmm. show up as employees, yeah, as managers, capacities. Right. We, we, always, we like to show up and like, oh, my God, this is the day. This is the Super Bowl. This is the one play that matters the most. And then we get through it either marvelously or horribly. We get through that moment that was evidently, allegedly the penultimate moment. Don't mess it up. And you look back at it and you're like, oh, God, there's like 16 more. So as a leader myself, I have frequently one of the things I've been working on over the <laughs> – forever is that moment you just talked about, which is like, there's a moment as a leader where you go, do I, do I reach in and grab, take control or do I do nothing or do I provide 
a little bit of light hand coaching guidance. Hey, think about this. And oftentimes, I think leaders and managers get faked out by the alleged criticality of the moment. And sometimes it is critical. But if you've watched the movie a thousand times, <laughs> what you know is, you know what? If I had with this employee or this team 10 times before offered guidance and let them live through it and build capacities, we're now on the 11th allegedly critical moment and they would be they would be navigating it without me. You yeah, know, and they make it 6x, right? I mean, you make it 6x or 7x out of those five people, right? Out of what you what would have been 5x if you just play, run your play. Yeah. And I think what leaders get, um, you know, I think a, a pressure that really terrorizes leaders is that they're accountable regardless of what happens, you know, and I've That's heard, right. I've had those words directed to me as like, look, you're, you're responsible and you're accountable. Um, and so there's that, there's something terrifying about that, about letting go and say, okay, I, yes, I am accountable. Yes. I will face the consequences if this bombs, but my process is to accept a certain risk and allow my team to swing for something a little bigger than the kind of sure thing of just running, you know, Aaron's play that, which I just developed in the trenches myself when I That's was right. them. I mean, it's not like it's some crack the code situation. Sacred. Here. Yeah. Yeah. But that's terrifying, yeah. right? To be accountable, to be told, look, I know you got all kinds of reasons why it worked or didn't work or whatever, but, uh, but I'm talking to you, not the person you delegated it to. So there are different types of CMOs. This is another kind of cool thing about the fact that marketing is so big, so deep, so wide as a field. Uh, one of the ramifications of that is that there are many paths into CMO. There's, and there's archetypes, right? There's not unlimited numbers, really, you know? And so you know, some of the archetypes of types of CMOs, there's the brand or corporate comms CMO. There's the uh, demand CMO, CMOs that came through demand. That's relative, that's new in the last 10 years. I'd say even really seven years. Um, there's the... Uh, product marketing or product development CMO. There's the CMO who was sourced from sales. That's a little more rare. And I think you're a type of a CMO, which is comes from uh, not just product, but from like truly tech R&D engineering. Um, those are the four or five sort of, you know, Myers-Briggs types of CMOs. What, what attracted you to the role given where you started in your career? The, well, nothing. Um, I, you know, I don't even re view myself as a, as a, like a born and raised marketer, as you point out earlier, I was an engineer. Um, and it's just, you know, life is strange when you're young. I, I happen to be pretty good at math and I went down the path. You know, I think I had looked at like the list of what's your, what's the highest starting salaries getting a bachelor's degree and, you know, electrical engineering was up on the list, maybe chemical engineering or something. And I picked one of those. And I was good enough at math that, and I do appreciate and love and enjoy, let's just call it math, STEM, whatever. Um, and there was enough of a feedback loop to encourage me to continue that down that path. But like you, you know, like me, like everybody, we're, we're, we're broader than just that thing we happened to choose when we were 17. And I've always really enjoyed art and music and and writing like composition and just like the, the lyrical nature of how words come together. And, um, that wasn't my job. That wasn't my training. Um, but even as an engineer, 
I really enjoyed talking to people. You know, I really enjoyed getting in front of a crowd and um, and making really esoteric, you know, really obscure technical things entertaining and interesting. And it just started to happen um, as an engineer that they would, you know, my company would just put me in front of people more often because Aaron was the engineer who liked to talk. And uh, at some point in my personal life and career, I was looking at jobs for some reason. And I was an engineering manager at the time. And there was an opportunity uh, to take on a product marketing type of job, a technical marketing job, which they kind of described to me as take the techie, what we can do and translate that into you care about this. And it's, and it's awesome. And I said, Oh, I, <laughs> something about that is connecting with me, even though I don't, I don't know exactly what you mean, but I think I get that at, at that, at that moment I had been in sales engineering. I was actually out there with customers all the time, talking to people and kind of in the, in the trenches. And there was this, this kind of undercurrent in the sales force of how like you know, marketing doesn't get what happens out here in the real world. But I thought, oh, this is this is really interesting. And the thesis of the guy who hired me was I want to bring because he also had heard that kind of feedback to marketing. He said, I want to bring somebody from like the field or from an engineering background who can bring some real, real concrete kind of, you know, let's just call it substance for the moment into our marketing messaging. So that's how I got in. I was in product marketing, basically a technical marketing role. Um, coming up with, you know, they, he asked me a, a couple of weeks in, he's like, all right, um, we need you to devise a campaign. And I said, well, what is a campaign? <laughs> so it's a good question. That's actually yeah. an oddly good it's, question. It's what still is a, a campaign? good question. Yeah. It's what is a campaign, good... Aaron? <laughs> yeah. Right. Let's, let's, talk, let's talk about that for another hour. We'll talk about that later, actually, in this interview. Right. Literally. Um, all right, so, so that's how you got into marketing. All right, so, so that's yeah. how you got into But it wasn't like I want to be in marketing or I want to be a CMO. It wasn't that. Well, it sounds it's like, just, uh, tell me if this is right, uh, what drew you to marketing, whether, you, whether you, even though it's, maybe it wasn't conscious, but incrementally, it sounds like over your career, mm -hmm. you realized or experienced how this big, deep, wide field called marketing can offer opportunities to tap into a, a wider spectrum of your interests, your passions, and maybe your talents, right? You're right. I mean, that's, yeah, you're right. I mean, it gave me a, an outlet to, you know, one thing I've, I think I've told you before is like um, getting into the marketing organization, there were a lot more hugs than in engineering. And I really enjoyed that. I just like that sort of warmer kind of social environment. Because um, I, I would self-describe as an introvert and it was a little awkward at, for me at first when someone would come at me with a hug. For me, being an engineer, getting into marketing, I certainly appreciated the opportunity to, uh, you know, exercise the right brain, if, if you believe mm -hmm. in that, that dichotomy. But the thing, the way I was able to contribute at that time is that there was really an explosion of just data richness in marketing. And at that moment, there just weren't yet as many people who had been trained to manage data, you know, to work with data. Now it's a lot more common. So I, it, they were like, oh, Aaron, you, you, can, you can project, you can build a forecast. You know, you can write a little algorithm, a little bit of code to do our attribution model. <laughs> and, and it's like ice cold logic that nobody would complain. You're like putting your thumb on the scale and cooking the books or anything, which I don't know if you've heard, John, but there are rumblings of that out there in, in, in the... Uh, ecosystem when it comes to marketing, having a little bit of friction with other departments, it's 
so often it's about different interpretations of the numbers. So it just turned out, I, you know, I had an opportunity to contribute in that way. Even though I'm not ice cold, that part of my skill set was something I could offer um, because they I've watched that. you do that. I've watched you do that in more than one company. I've watched you be a force for, and I'm going to use a word that is a dangerous word to use, but I'm going to use it because it applies to you, for factual truth, a force for truth backed by data, which is so desperately need in B2B go-to-market, needed in B2B go-to-market. Um, there's so many things that are that are shades of gray, but 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 I've watched you multiple times in different cultures, different business models, different logos, different companies, be that person who says, hey, I'm not here to spin and win. I'm here to find out what is actually happening so that we can digest the either the good or the bad or that or the bothness of that and then make our next smarter informed move. And and um my God, is that needed in really every endeavor, but especially B2B go to market. So you just have to take that compliment. That wasn't a question. Um, so, uh, yeah, you bet, man. Uh, more of that. So um, you engineering into product marketing, into segment marketing. Then you jumped into this thing, this deep ocean thing called demand, demand gen, demand creation. And then... What the purpose of this episode is, is you jumped from the VP of demand into this thing called CMO. Um, I guess my question there is, in light of that hop from segment marketing into demand and then demand into CMO, what's one kind of, huh, aha, insight, or that felt different from segment marketing to demand? And then what's one that comes to mind where you're like, damn, that's really different from VP of demand to CMO? You ask very thought-provoking questions, John. It's my job. Um, I think going from segment and product marketing to demand, um, you know, it, re it reminds me of an expression that I used to hear a lot in marketing, you know, five to 10 years ago. I don't hear it as much now, but there was this expression I used to hear a lot, which was strategy to execution. And, you know, in segment and product marketing, we were, I would say it was more on the strategy side. We were producing, targeting, messaging, and sometimes even going as far as producing the content, you know, different organizations are structured a little differently. But the actual execution, which most people would experience as deployment of the media, you know, media planning, media right. buying, and then the media management, the so-called campaigns, you know, the advertising, the whatever, that wasn't as much my day job, but it's something I depended very deeply on. And, and it was like, this is a, this is an and function kind of situation. You, you really have to have both of them or you have neither of them. You know, it, you, you, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it yeah, doesn't no, no, really, I, we see it, we it see it all the time. I see yeah. it all the time. I, ask me how many go to market teams I've seen who are way over rotated on doing shit yeah and under they're borderline pantsless when it comes to a truly thoughtful refreshed on point integrated aligned strategy but right. the opposite is also true which is if you're all strategy and pointy-headed academic whatever and you're not shooting yeah. any bullets downfield yeah congratulations exactly. the, the on strategy being smart thing is so so important and so powerful but it reminded me of those days like when i was 
in sales in the sales engineering org and which was part of sales and we would say gosh those people back at the ivory tower of corporate headquarters don't get it out here in the field what's happening right, right. and uh and i felt that being inside of you know i guess it was one of the things i that i carried with me was still having a sense of like as we do this stuff how does it actually land when you're sitting across the table from somebody you know or when they walk in the room and they see that you know that title or whatever on your something on your booth or somewhere um and so i really enjoyed the strategy parts very heady stuff um and then i really enjoyed being able to you know uh direct and guide how it actually landed in the market and it gave me a, a better appreciation for what's important about strategy what's important about planning you mean you mean you mean once you became responsible for demand, which is I think what you're saying is 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 the land of it's not like strategy doesn't exist in demand, my God, yeah, but it's it way more execution intersected than segment strategy, right? So uh, yeah. are you saying that once you became the owner, the the most per, the one of the people most responsible for driving demand and pipeline, you began to see like, oh, this is where strategy comes to life or not? Yes. Yeah. With the absence of that, it's like when, let's say your agency says, hey, I'll run your digital media, but I need to be able to see down funnel the pipeline. I need to see what the outcomes were down funnel. Um, and if I can't see that, I don't know what is most important about what I'm doing. So let me just map that analogy over to strategy to execution. Right. You can think all these things we're doing in the strategy side of things. Um, are important and some are more so than others some some are not um, but how it lands in the marketplace is a way to assess what really is important so i you know you know ultimately it's just that having both not necessarily under the same leader but but having both with equal kind of rigor and respect for and dependence on each other i think is really powerful and the absence of either one is basically pretend marketing. Growth Driver is brought to you today by the talented and kind people at Intelligent Demand. Look, if you're a B2B CMO, CRO, or some flavor of a go-to-market leader, and you're personally on the hook for driving efficient revenue growth, you need to go check them out at intelligentdemand.com. Schedule a free meeting with one of their growth experts, talk some shop, and learn how they can help you hit your goals. So the jump from VP demand to CMO, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll blurt out something you clean me up is now you're responsible for you are you are responsible for strategy. You are also responsible for execution. But I know the role well enough, and I do this for a living too. It's the role of CMO isn't just responsible for strategy and execution within marketing. There's got to be a third, and I don't want to telegraph it. You you finish that statement for me. Like what is the, what? What are the major components? Whereas, if segment strategy was very strategy heavy, if now I'm the VP of demand, I'm really doused in execution. What does that look like? What does that mix look like or become when you become a CMO? Well, I think you you might have asked two questions there, and let me start with the first one. You said, "What's that third thing?" Yeah, and I at least for me. The third thing, when I was VP of demand gen, the thing I sort of recognized in myself that I think I was missing, but what I did see in my leaders a layer up 
my own boss, the COO, the CFO, everyone was what I'll just call finance. And I actually, within context, I had a decent enough finance background. I had taken some classes and I had to manage a budget. Um, but I mean like the finance of running a business beyond marketing budget. You know, we're talking about like your infrastructure costs, you know, your, the, the, what product managers deal with, like their kind of their margin within the PL of their, of their product. Um, you know, our labor costs, costs across the company, our health insurance, our health benefits, um, the, uh, the amount of debt we have and what we pay, you know, um, in terms of interest there. Uh, and, and then you start to tr get into words that people get really, let's say triggered by, especially in startup world, um, burn rate, cash runway, you know, investors, fundraising, valuations, and that kind of thing. That, that was the stuff. Let alone that, CAC, lifetime value, yes. or even just a, an honest calculation around this thing called ROI. Yeah. On and on and on. Yes. Totally. CAC and ROI. That's true. I would say like CAC and ROI, at least within the context of demand gen, were still sort of very, very central concepts, but some of the other things that I just mentioned weren't as much right. so, but I did notice like the C-level people talked about that all the time. And what that kind of reflected to me is that's what they actually care about all the time. That's what they're thinking about all the time. Um, that's where I wanted to get my brain into that world. I actually approached our CFO at the company and just asked him if he would mentor me. Um, and I would say if there's, so, if I were talking to anybody who's listening to this, like, um, don't be too proud to go ask for a mentor at any stage of your career. Amen, brother. I have them right now. Yeah. And I'm lucky to have them. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. All right. I want to hear right. about right. who your mentors are, but I specifically approached that CFO and, and he gave me some advice and, and it helped me just get my brain centered in where the executive suite is, which, which is a slightly different place than where the demand gen suite is, even though, or the VP suite is, even though it's very money centric, it's very ROI, it's very performance, but it's not exactly the same thing. Yeah. And uh, I, don't, I don't know what, little framework we're building right now, but it's almost like the anatomy of a, of a fully formed CMO. It's deep strategy capabilities, deep execution capabilities, business and financial management capabilities. And I think we didn't mention it just now, but we mentioned at the beginning, it's, it's people, leadership, culture, accomplishing thing, accomplishing things through others. And, and, and I would posit not only the people in your org chart, but because the, the, there's, there's a, especially in B2B, there is a deeply cross-functional quarterbacking aspect to being a CMO in, in, in a B2B context. That means we, we have to find ways, and it's hard as shit, to accomplish things not only through our own people who report up into me, but sales, customer success, and product. I mean, that is hard. And it's the definition of, of, of vision and leadership, which is the seg, a good segue as it turns out to my next sort of let's. So, okay, congratulations, you became a CMO. Now I want to go kind of the next step in the sort of the life cycle, which is you're uh, entering the role and you're entering the role at a company. I'm the CMO at X. How do you establish your vision? And then how do you begin to build strategy as a new CMO at a new company? So the first thing I, I came into is 
you know, for one thing, I didn't want to be the playbook guy. And I actually, you know, meaning like, I know how it's supposed to look and I'm just going to make it look that way. We did this and, at Acme. We're going to do it at beta. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people do that. And a lot, and actually a lot of hiring managers want that. And I've seen di diametrically opposed filters. There have been cases where I saw a spec and they said, we want someone who's been there, done that. Right. Br bring us a playbook. You've done this and just do that here. And then I've seen literally written in the spec. We do not want someone who's just been there, done that. We want you to be open-minded, entrepreneurial. Don't assume that our situation is like the situation you had at company X. And, you know, I look at those two situations, neither of them are wrong. I mean, they're just, they're just what the, the leadership is looking for, but you want to know, I think who you are <laughs> and I know who I am. I certainly have run plays and I've learned frameworks works and I, and I've, uh, you know, had patterns that worked better for me or didn't, but I try to approach a new situation as a new system. And I have to understand the system before I can really advise or, or plot the solution, you know, to whatever, let's call it the problem that the situation is facing. So, so I, I tend to favor one of those more so than the others, um, in what I look for in the, in the challenges that I, that I tackle. So when I joined my company as a CMO, that was the first thing I did is I tried, I really tried to restrain myself from, you know, pattern matching too much and going, Ooh, I know what's wrong there. We'll do this. I know what's wrong there. We'll do that. Even though it's very satisfying, you know, there's a lot of craving for, for a new leader to say something with conviction. And even the word conviction is often articulated by leaders. You know, it's just, there are certain words that get around and people just start talking that way. Um, they want you to have conviction. And one of the things that frustrates people about me is that I, I don't project artificial conviction until I'm ready to. And that's just a personality trait, you know. That you have, okay, that that's a personality trait, or is that, or is that a piece of advice? Because so the question I'm asking is, you're, congratulations, you're a CMO at X. How do you establish your vision and your strategy? And what I've heard from you so far, in your answer is, well, before I tell you how I establish my vision and strategy, is be open and don't walk in with what, what did you just say? False. Uh, what was the phrase you just used? Yeah, yeah false conviction conviction yeah, just running a play recipe books so know, don't do that. that that's great at least advice, for me but... I, I i i wouldn't do that but that but if you don't do that I, as i've kind of pointed out you leave a gap there's something that people still want they're like well then why are you here you're not making the decisions yet you know you haven't rolled out a new program or turned over the team or whatever so you do have to give something in exchange and the best i can do is how i make my decisions right is well in two directions one what am I looking for, right? So I, I do kind of try to teach my stakeholders, like I have a mental model, which is very simple. Let's get my facts straight, make a decision, and then get it done. And you have to have all three legs of that table. There, there are too many people out there who make a decision without getting their facts straight, disaster, <laughs> unless they're lucky. There are too many people who can do things if you tell them what to do, but won't make a decision, all right, disaster. Uh, and there are plenty of people who get paralyzed in the get your facts straight, you know, just analyzing and won't make a decision. And, and like, even as I say that, 
you can probably like conjure up in your mind real people in your past who have been any of those archetypes, including yourself, maybe, right? And myself. Yeah. So for me, that's what I'm looking for. And so if I'm very clear, like I'm just getting my facts straight here based on these facts, based on how this comes together, we're going to probably make this decision or this decision. Like it's very clear what the logical sequence here, what the process is. You have to give that at least. So people understand like, oh, there is a method to the madness here. There is like something happening and it's not like just indecision or, or fear of making a decision. It's not that it's a responsible decision. I think, I think you just answered. I think I get it. I said, well, how do you establish your vision? And I know you well enough to know that framework, that three point framework is, is, is your, it, it, it is a major part of your vision, which is, Hey, we obviously we're here to drive growth and drive it effectively and efficiently. So how do we do that big, ever-changing, cacophonous, disrupting, confusing, ambiguous thing called drive growth? Okay, drive growth. What I hear you say is by, in, by demonstrating and installing a model that says we will get our facts straight, we will make decisions, we will execute those decisions, and guess what happens? What four is is back to one. We have new facts that we right. need to get straight on, that we have new decisions to make, that we now need to go execute. And there, there begins the cycle. And I think that's what, I think that is your vision. Many of the marketing job roles I've come into, um, I think the get your facts straight phase is really important for the stakeholders if you are clear that that's what you're doing. Because so often, I, at least in my experience, kind of one of the chief complaints and yeah, and, it, and I will say it's a complaint is like the last person just didn't listen to me. <laughs> you know, they went off doing this. We were literally targeting, targeting different people or something. And, and sometimes that's a one-sided version of a story. That's really just, they did listen and we disagreed and I don't like the decision they made, but sometimes it's at least communicated to me as like, well, they just weren't listening to me. And as long as you're clear, and, and that doesn't just apply to the stakeholders, it actually applies to the team too. You know, as a manager, you've got a new team under you who are making a decision. Do I like this new boss or not? And, uh, you know, them being heard them, you really listening and understanding their point of view without committing that you're just going to do what they want. You're not there right. to just satisfy you're what not they saying, had always me wished we would do. do. Yeah. It's not right. tell me what to do. You got to be clear about that, but it's that you're, you're really seriously contemplating and considering and incorporating their, their point of view into ultimately decisions that you're responsible for. And as long as I can commit, I will make a decision, but it'll be a decision where I've got all the, the right information that you would want me to have before I make the decision. Step one, get your facts straight. Step two, make a decision. Step three, execute it, and then go back to step one. Okay, we got that. But what Aaron just said is you have an opportunity when you're doing step one called get your facts straight, there's an opportunity to build trust and cross-functional, and even I would even say cultural. You can build culture, build trust, and build alignment if when you go to get your facts straight, you do so with intellectual honesty and you do so by listening, asking and listening. That's deep. That is very good. Ask, listen, but never give away responsibility for the decision that you're paid to make. You know, that's, that's one, because I've seen marketers go down the wrong path 
I'm just going to claim that it's the wrong path of being the sales appeasers, you know, make sales happy. I don't think that's healthy. They, in, in fact, I've, I've actually talked to sales counterparts very openly who've, who've told me, I don't want to make the decision for you, Aaron. <laughs> I don't want you to, make, to, to just try to make me happy. I want you to make a good decision. I want it to be a professional decision, one that I can get behind. Like, I want to understand it. I want to have some confidence that, that we're on the same team here. But it's because we, you know, whatever, because of you and I, our history, or because of the, the last guy or gal that was in this job, we didn't have that trust. I didn't have that belief. So you still have to maintain responsibility of the decision. Um, but you don't have to be such a blowhard that you're just running a recipe book. And 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 you you do have to give that process a chance to, to rebuild. A lot of times people say reestablish the relationship, rebuild the relationship. It's because things weren't going well. You know, when you get a CMO job, I'm going to say four out of five times, it's because things were not going well. <laughs> the relationship, one out of five times, that CMO that you're replacing um, got plucked for their next yeah, stage. They won They're the huge. career lottery. Yeah, they yeah, got that yeah. huge next step, They're, yeah. whatever, some huge. But public, the other four times, it was, it was dark, man. The other yeah. four times, it wasn't going well. The pipeline's yeah. drying up or sales is upset or whatever, or we think the message is way off, the founders aren't happy, and so on and so forth. Um, so you do have to fix something. You do have to rebuild something. That is another call out. And I, I, I want to, you didn't say this, but you inspired this just now in me. This episode is about being a CMO, but the thing you just talked about, which is don't go out there, get the facts straight in an open, honest, trust building, ask and ask an honest question and listen way. But then you, the B part was, but don't, they don't want you to, and you can't give away your responsibility for owning a good decision. And then that gets executed. My point is, don't wait until you become a CMO to learn how to do that. You can do that right now. If you're a, if you're a marketing manager, you can, in the scope of your current job, apply what Aaron just said. You can, and I would encourage you to. If you're a director, you begin developing those skills, and definitely if you're a VP. So anyway, that's that's good stuff. Um, okay, so we're still in this sort of establishing strategy phase. There's several. There's a couple of questions that I want to ask. And um, let's see if we can keep them relatively quick. But um, there's been an explosion of XLG. I call it XLG. I and mean, the X's could be marketing-led growth, sales-led growth, product-led growth, community-led growth, partner ecosystem-led growth, peanut butter and jelly-led growth, right? So you walk in the door and maybe they're doing some version of acquisition-focused, one-to-many marketing and sales doing the 2015 Serious Decisions MQL machine, which, by the way, I just described 85% of B2B. And then you come in as a new CMO, and you're aware of ABM. You're aware of product-led growth. You're aware of partners. You're aware of indirect channel, all these different motions. How do you go about selecting the right one so that you can then execute it and bring it to life. So for one thing, I, I ask people who have done it or claim to have done it, like I just talk to people. Sometimes I'll even ask, um, you know, my current CEO is really good about helping me with this, is just bridge me to someone else who is in a company that has done this or people think that have done this and just talk to them. What are you doing here? Because what often people are doing is they are not actually deploying like the recipe book of PLG or something. 
they're at first principles trying to solve something for their company, it starts to look similar to how someone else solved it. And some third party labels it PLG. Right. Right. Or some third party labels it SLG or some third party labels it ABM or whatever. And then they go and sell a tool or a class. That's it. And the reason they label it is to sell you something quite often, not necessarily to help you in your unique situation. Yeah. And those frameworks are interesting to me. There is a synthesis happening there of findings, right? People have found things, but what I'm really interested in, and those do guide me a little bit, but what I'm most interested in is the first principles. You know, the person who actually did this, what are they actually doing day to day and why? Because the framework can certainly inspire, you know, give you direction. Like, oh, I need to learn about something called PLG. But before I dare apply it at my company, where there are people who are drawing a paycheck and their customers and their investors and all that, before I dare do that, um, I want to go to our first principles, right? I want to apply what was really happening. And I'm perfectly happy for whatever I'm ultimately doing to get labeled by some third party later on. In fact, I would be very proud of that. Um, but I don't do, like, as I said before, I don't really apply the recipe book. You know, I don't go read a blog that says, well, here's here are the five steps to PLG and then let's make sure we do that like it's a best practice. That that doesn't that doesn't help me a lot. You know, findings of statistical, call it findings at the group level aren't necessarily justifiably applied at the individual level. And this applies in many, many facets of life, um, just in terms of rigor of 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 what science is and what what study is. Um, but so many of us use the framework or the playbook or the best practices or the industry standard as the justification for why you do a thing. And I, I'll offer to you that if you do that, you are not exercising your responsibility as a leader of the company. You're shirking, you're shirking your responsibility. Have you ever heard that quote, the map is not the territory? I don't know if I've heard that one, but I, I think I follow. It's it's awesome. It's like, yeah, know the map. You need a map. But don't make the mistake of thinking that this two-dimensional piece of paper called a map is the actual earth. Yeah. <laughs> the framework ain't the ain't the truth of your use case. And, right. and, 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 and don't go read a book and then march into your go-to-market planning and being like, I've got the answer. Yeah, that totally. Yeah. 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 A long time ago, I learned a weird thing. You know, we were using a best practice where we would, we would, um, like we would ease up on our email sends over like holidays and weekends. I, I mean, this is years ago and it was just cause it was like a best practice we had read somewhere in a blog or, <laughs> or something, maybe some, I don't know where it came from, but our email guy, um, was like, yeah, we, we shut those off because people don't want to read emails and I, and and because then we the tried bible it. says There's, don't do that right and yeah, then what yeah. happened and i don't know what someone else's bible said cuz honestly i don't know where we even got that idea but we just tried it and we saw oh actually for these certain uh message streams like consistently yeah. they would not only get the same but like slightly better open rates right on the weekends and holidays and I, and it was so strange in my own mind i remember like it was the ho- the winter break very soon after that little experiment we ran. And I realized I was sitting there at my in-laws house and I didn't, it wasn't like a highly programmed day. And I was just kind of sitting on the couch and I was just tapping away at my phone. And I realized I'm reading these emails right now. Yeah. I'm converting to me. Yeah. Yeah. Like they have my attention anyway. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. Like what 
That's a good example. That's a really good example. All right. So rounding out this section, I got one other. I, I, I would be derelict in my duties as host of Growth Driver if I didn't at least ask you, new CMO, we talked about go-to-market motions. We got to talk about the balance between reputation, brand awareness. I'll call it demand cultivation, the cultivating and creation of demand, which I, I think has a lot to do with brand and awareness and reputation, being in balance with the capturing and converting of demand. It's a, it's a big topic in our industry right now for good reason. The way that the uh, story goes is that our field, the field of B2B marketing, B2B growth, over-rotated, we think, into bottom of funnel, demand capture, demand conversion, mid and bottom. How do you, as a, C- as a CMO, let alone a new CMO, entering a company with real deal pipeline requirements and all that kind of stuff, how do you navigate and think about the proper balancing of top of funnel demand creation versus bottom of funnel uh, conversion? Well, I don't know what the proper balance is. And the balance, I think, changes from time to time. Um, when I when I came into it, it was before the recent economic instability, let's say, um, particularly in the tech world. And so the model, like the kind of framework in mind was very much that the demand you do capture is partly demand that was generated by yourself and partly demand that was generated by others. Right. That, that makes enough or sense. Or luck right? would be the third. Or luck. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. Or just organic, um, like sometimes I need a thing and I didn't need a brand's help to tell me that I that my washing machine broke. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, that's true. I need a washing machine. Yeah, wherever yeah. the demand came from. Right. Right. Okay, so, so your point is um, what? So sometimes you create the demand, sometimes others. Right. So so the way we modeled that was like, well, we have a responsibility to capture demand whether we created it or not, but we also have a responsibility to contribute to creating demand for ourselves. And there's also a reasonable point of view that you really can't separate them that way. You can <clears throat> tactically, in the motions, you can categorize the things you do as being more about this and more about that but that you can never really, you know, foundationally separate them, you know, um, but anyway, that's another, another debate over, over a beer or something. Um, but then the, the game did change a little bit, right? So in my specific case, we're late stage startup on a certain growth trajectory, certain called financial models, you know, about how much we should be spending. Um, and some other companies in different situations or different stages of their maturity had different targets. You know, they might be trying to maximize, you know, how profitable they are. Um, not every company is actually in that stage of maturity where that's the top priority is to just be profitable, but some companies are. But a lot of tech companies did shift in that general direction. And in a very short amount of time, you mentioned CAC earlier, you know, CAC suddenly became an incredibly like it like in in lights <laughs> more so it was always there on the page amongst other things like the growth rate the top line growth rate 
Um, but CAC suddenly became very, very powerful, very like more so than it had ever been, even though, even as I say that, like it was always important. It was always a big deal, but now suddenly it became like the bullseye was not, you can't just grow. You had to show efficient growth and that efficient growth had to be something you could plot out into the future that would then, um, show a satisfying break-even point basically you know, show a, a credible path towards profitability. And I'm speaking sort of in the context of these startups, late stage startups who are, are fueled largely, you know, by investment. Yeah. That, the, the, the changing, the changing of your North star metrics as a CMO from growth or pipeline, um, to CAC, uh, is, is a is a total is a fantastic numeric example of the shift from growth at all costs to, to efficient growth. But back to brand and demand, though, how do you do? Are, do, do you even how do you think? I'm I'm kind of take me into the specifics. Well, we did shift towards demand capture in the short term. We realized that a lot of the the normal, you know, the normal things that should do before all this happened, you know, say two and a half years ago or something, the normal things that you do. Um. You, you you really no longer can just do them because you're supposed to. Like, let's say the best practice B2B marketing tech stack. You know, everyone's supposed to have a tool that does X. Everyone's supposed to have a tool that does Y. You may argue about which one's the best tool, but you're supposed to have it. Now, <laughs> you really have to challenge that. Can we really, can we live without it? Does this really bring enough incremental value? And as you know, and the reason why so many companies shift, you know, they, they over index on demand capture is because it's so much easier to measure. Um, but actually, there is some prudence in that. There's a reason why everyone does that. Yes, people over rotate. I've done it myself. Um, but there are certain things that you're fairly confident are, um, are contributing in a certain way. There's an input and there's an output relation, relationship. And then there's things that you are, that you believe contribute, but you can't really prove it. And you haven't really proven it to yourself, but you believe it's true. We all say it's true. We have the CMO roundtables and we say it's true and we talk about how important it is, but you don't really know. You haven't proven it to yourself. And this became an opportunity as well as a mandate to challenge those things and strip them out and fold them back in, in a disciplined way, you know, kind of controlling your variables to start to build a really more firsthand, uh, you know, basis for why you do those things and do they really contribute in some way? And so there were things I sacrificed that you could fill in the blank. You would already know, but like, um, certain things like awareness oriented programmatic display, you know, certain event sponsorships, you know, certain syndication deals we did or newsletters. There were things that's like, well, we want to be there. We believe in it. If we're not there, we have this hypothesis of all the bad that would happen if we weren't there. But we never actually tried to withdraw from that because of the opportunity cost, right? Well, what if? And it's in the budget and everyone does it and you're supposed to do it. We can't get left behind. But then presented with this craziness um, in the economy, you actually had an opportunity to do that. And so we did. And we pulled back on certain things. And I saw, oh, there actually is an effect. My, there is an effect when I pull back on just awareness-based display, it actually affects my inbound organic traffic. And people already had that theory, but how many of us actually tested it? Yeah. And so now I quantified, 
oh, now I can justify this much and I can fold it back in. So hopefully that's one way to kind of answer your, your question. That's really interesting. You're telling me that you have over the last, whatever time, time period, 12, I'm guessing six to 12 plus months, you have run in, at split your own example, by the way, if you don't know what Split does, you got to go check out what Split does because, of, co of course, Aaron does this because he's working at a company that 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 it is deeply committed to experimentation. But are you saying that you ran some some experiments yourself in your own mm -hmm. ecosystem? And what what did it tell me again? What did it uh, communicate? What did it prove? Well, it it showed me um, call it the marginal impact of some of the things, right? Some of the some of the tactics that go into a marketing plan. Um, there are also other strictures that didn't, you know, things that didn't work as well for us at all. Um, there were certain things, some, some SEO oriented tactics that we believed were super important and we would never dare not do. And then we found right. out when we stopped doing them, they actually didn't hurt us. It didn't matter. <laughs> we were just doing it because you're supposed to do it. And everyone says, well, that's best practice. Um, there were certain events that we, that we were doing, and I don't mean to pick on events, of course, but it's just a good example because they're such large investments. Um, and they, they're so, so very much fueled by a sort of belief and maybe even a vanity that like, you got to be there. Everyone else is there. Um, my competitor is there. And then, but this gave us a, like compelled us to really look, hold on. I know they're there, but doesn't mean they're there for a good reason. Why are we there? Are, is this audience really our target? Like, do we really believe at the first principles level? You know, we say this is our target and this audience is overlapping, but not exactly it. Okay. I would love to be there if the cost were zero, but if the cost is $80,000 plus T&E to send all my people and then the, the, the trackable, the attributable ROI that comes out of it is really hard. You know, that, that, that difficult argument you have to say, totally. oh, well, it takes a long time for the pipe to come through from that event, you know, <laughs> oh, 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 the, uh, you know, the, they may not have scanned at the booth, but they walk by and they saw us and then later they'll come through, you know, as an inbound or something like we believe that stuff's happening, which is very, very hard to demonstrate. Um, is that belief strong enough anymore? You know, when things are a little tighter? to justify it? No. And, and you can experiment and it, it hurts a little bit. Cause I like those event organizers, you know, they're friends, they're nice people, but to have to say, yeah, we're going to have to skip this one, um, and really find out. But, but ultimately that's your responsibility. A hundred percent. It's the responsibility. And, and, uh, I, I think what you're speaking to is, let me set it up this way. Um, the macro environment has changed. Welcome to efficient growth. I'm not asking. Yeah. I'm telling you. So bam, yeah, right. that's the air in the room. The air has changed in the room. Now, what are the ramifications and ripple effects, otherwise known as what do we do about it? And what we do about it, unless you don't want your job anymore, uh, is you take a hard, fresh look at your playbook that you're running. Take a fresh perspective on what do I, what smart, hopefully bets, smart bets do I want to make what adjustments do I want to make in my playbook um, end to end to, to achieve my goal of efficient, more efficient growth? And so with that as the tee up, I guess, how have you been thinking about that and doing that 
in your role as CMO? Are you doing account-based? Are you doing customer-led growth? So when you think about that, tell me how you're thinking about how you adjust your playbook. Those smart bets that you mentioned, that the first step was us re-examining why we thought those were smart bets. Because some of those smart bets were rooted in first principles. We had gone through the mental effort to convince ourselves for some reason through some hypothesis, some you know, leaps. Some, sometimes you do just have to kind of go off on a, a certain amount of belief, um, sometimes based on very concrete data. But re, reinvestigate, like reexamine why those were smart bets, because it may have been smart bets two years ago. It's not necessarily a smart bet now. And too many of our decisions, especially if you're inheriting decisions, um, were actually just smart bets based on the claim of someone else. You know, the framework, the vendor, the somebody who said, well, this is best practice. You're supposed to do eight touches or something. Make sure those, you know, those bets still stand on right. their own, on their own as smart. What I hear you, now. I'm going to go back in this episode. What I hear you saying is go back to your methodology, get your facts straight, take a fresh yeah. take at your facts straight so that you can then take a yeah. fresh take at a good decision. Yeah. So that, that's the first step was like, why are these our bets in the first place? Yep. And the second part of it was, you know, you were asking me earlier about like the mix of brand versus demand. And, and, and we really haven't thought about it that way as much. I mean, I'm very, very familiar with even in my own self, structuring things that way. But we took a look at our um, our targeting, the persona, really revisited what would then translate into the brand, who we want to represent ourselves to be, and the message we would communicate that to them. And then just challenged ourselves that the content we produce is worth consuming, right? Is, the, is it worthy of consumption? Um, you know, I, and I remember one of my colleagues in PR once told me like, you can't run a press release on that. It's not newsworthy. And I was kind of like taking that word, that concept and applying it to us in all of our content. Is this newsworthy? Is this something that is worth consuming? Because I didn't want to rely just on the best practices of like frequency, you know, let's just put trash in front of people enough times. Like let's get, I don't have the luxury of that right now. I think, you know, so that was a start is, is our, is our story good enough? Is it really bringing, you know, the value we want to people because the mm. reckoning that's happening in tech is I think a really, really hard fork in the road between your nice to have in your stack and your must haves in your stack. And for any given company, and actually you may have even planted that idea for me, John, at some point. So I credit you with that. But you asked me a question once, like, is, are you a must have or a nice to have? And at the time, I think you asked me that at a higher level of just like broadly, or is your category, is your tool, you know, nice to have or must to have. Um, but the way it's sort of soaked in in my mind is actually with certain prospects and certain customers, we have achieved, we have earned with them the status of must have. But with certain prospects and customers, we have failed to achieve that or we have not achieved it yet. So is our content worthy of consumption and does it help to earn the status, the stature of must have? I think there's a, what you just said makes, there, we're clearly in a tech reckoning. And what you just said made me realize, I think we're finally at long last accelerated, soon to be accelerated by AI. We're in a content reckoning. 
I hope we're entering into content reckoning. And what I mean is the world is already filled with a bunch of mediocre, a glut of mediocre content that was that was created in a one-to-many mindset. And I think what you just said is what you do have done as a CMO is you've said, we're going to get real clear about our target audience and our personas, and we're going to be courageous enough to develop a point of view and creative and content and calls to action specifically for them through the lens of our differentiated value prop and positioning. And, and to do that, we're going to say no to one to everyone, one to many, broad, mediocre, try to do everything. And we're going to laser in and we're, and we're going to, that's where we're going to place our bets. Um, how's it going? Yes. Um, as you said, the, the game changes all the time. So we're always adapting, right? We're always adapting. Um, it depends. It always depends on what data you're looking at and when. Because some things are just very hard to judge. You know, when I say like, you know, real data, that that comes with the implication of the limitations of the... Of measurement. Of yeah. the data, right? Yeah. All right. Um I could talk to you for a very long time, my friend, and we do. But thankfully, I know you in the real world, and, and we do talk regularly. But we're going to pivot now into the lightning round okay. phase of the episode. So lightning round means lightning round. So I'm going to ask you an impossibly <laughs> deep question, and you're going to force yourself to give me a Rorschach inkblot answer. And the goal here is to not overthink it. So will you do this with me? You hate this, I know. You'll try. All right. Thank you for trusting me. All right, here we go. Um, what's one important thing you learned as a CMO as you did your rebrand? I learned that the way we had already done it, people had put a lot of thought and heart into it, and it was held deeply in their chests, and it was hard to let go. So a lot of times the instinct in rebranding was like, well, just say it that way, which, you know, at which point, why are you bothering to do a rebrand at all? <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, I, I saw that, that, that showing respect for what had come before and giving it a chance to actually be better and even undermine why we're going through a rebranding is, is a fair and, and I think important thing to do is to honor what came before and not just like throw it away. Like it was wrong. Um, it was probably right at the time, you know, it was right at the time. And then times, time passes, time changes, we learn more, our market changes. And it's okay to update things and change things and call it a rebrand. Um, but that doesn't mean what came before is wrong. But but that that emotional connection to, to what had come before is not something to dismiss. To dismiss or denigrate. All right. Yeah, what's one important thing as a CMO you learned in the in the launch of a new website? You have to remember it seems so obvious, but the user, like the person visiting your site and, and try to put yourself in their head of why they're visiting your site, just as you would when you visit the sites you're interested in, what are you actually looking for in that moment? And, and don't ask too much mental energy of the person once they've landed. They've already done you the incredible honor of showing up on the front page. Can you minimize the mental energy and investment to give them what they were looking for? And I, you know, I remember we were, we were doing this and so often we started to think about, but what about this other audience? What about that other audience? What about that other audience? And, and it's so easy to get into, you know, 
satisfy everyone, but you have to have the courage to say, stop, everybody stop for a second. Remember the one or two, not just personas, but reasons that they come. Why did they come? What were they looking for? What button were they looking for? And please just put the button under their finger. <laughs> um, what What is one piece of advice you would give someone who wants to be a CMO one day in their career? I would say learn the language of the business, not the language of the marketing. It's, mm. it's foregone conclusion you'll learn the language of the marketing, but you have to learn the language of business speak speak in the language that a cfo speaks in or a sales leader speaks in or a ceo speaks in great uh you have worked for many cmos you are now a cmo you've earned the right in my opinion to answer this next question what advice would you give current cmos maybe i've already given the advice today but that is um, exercise your responsibility don't don't let frameworks and patterns and playbooks and other people's conclusions um make your decisions for you don't delegate to that you you have to go to first principles and you have to make informed decisions as the best marketer in most rooms you're in because all those other people actually think you are doing that they so you expect you are doing that they don't realize the you know that we can go to conferences and go to a, a session on how to do such and such and then just bring that back and adopt that framework. They don't realize that's what you're doing necessarily. Yeah, don't don't buy your suit off the mannequin. Um, mm -hmm. uh, what like one that. piece of advice would you give the head of sales in a B2B company as a CMO? Oh, you know, um, I'd say, you know, we're on the same side. And when you look at another function through the bubble. You know, you, if, if you're in your bubble and someone's in their bubble and the bubbles merge and there's that flat spot in between, you know, you're, you're looking through this like window, but you're, you're not really living in their bubble. And that, that empathy for what people go through and the reality, like, like what the profession is, is something that a sales leader should deeply empathize with because there, there are nasty things said out there that I, and I, I've heard sales leaders chuckle and, and, and repeat these things to me. Like when someone says, well, I'm just a dumb sales guy, you know, very self-consciously. Well, everyone knows how to sell. Everyone has an opinion on what I should say in the room when I'm in front of the client that I got into that room with me. And they hate that, right? I mean, that sucks that everyone, that you, that you think people undervalue the profession that you're in, like sales is a real profession and it's not just the pitch. It's all the back end stuff. It's the, it's negotiations and red lines and the quote and a lot of stakeholders. Um, it's custom stuff in the product. Like there's a lot to that profession. Uh, you know, my advice to my counterparts in sales is that's the same stuff going on in marketing. And I didn't appreciate that when I was in sales, but once I got into marketing, two things happened. Once I developed, one, I developed a really strong appreciation for um the real profession or professions within marketing like this is real work it's not fluff the second thing i developed was uh, almost protectiveness of sales when i heard marketers being dismissive oh well sales you know they're not going to follow up on those leads i intercepted that right away we don't talk about them that way they're real people and professionals and your partners and we cannot allow ourselves to kind of minimize them because we're not living that life every day 
So I would just ask the same level of empathy and and consideration from my counterpart in sales. And it's, I mean, if you can have that in both directions, it's a really powerful partnership. That's great advice. All of it. So such good advice. Um, we're going to round out with a couple of questions just about you as a human and a person. What's, what's, um, what's the proudest moment you've had so far as a CMO last couple of years? You know, my, my proudest moments, I, that's a, Great question. Um, usually what pops into my mind is when my employees, my team, um, get promoted, not necessarily under me, but you know, when, when someone goes on, you know, I've got a few examples in my kind of past where someone went on to get their first director title, their first VP title, or even their first head of marketing title. And I'm really proud of that because all those people, you know, we have very deliberate conversations about what's your next step? And like we were talking earlier, like if you want to be a VP or you want to be a head of marketing, you need to learn the language of, of business. So we practice those things. You know, we try to incorporate that into the person's, um, you know, their plan and their work output and that sort of stuff. So when we see someone actually land that VP job or that head of marketing job, like that's something I'm really proud of. I know, I know that feeling. That's, that's, uh, that's a leader. That's a leader move. Uh, is when you really derive pride and joy from the success of other people, right? And not that's loss a, either. Not loss because you lost someone from your team to some other no. company. But like life just is long, pride. man. Like it's life not even long. bittersweet. You know, it's not even like no. oh, you know, it's too bad that she's leaving, but it's great that they get. It's not like that. It, it really is unilaterally. Like heck, yes, we freaking nailed it. We closed a deal they're running it. And that's, that's a really awesome feeling, like more so even than numbers and, and the, you know, the profession. Aaron, you, um, you're a great man. You are so generous with your time and your, so your candor and your willingness to just be honest. And I just, uh, thank you from, from me. I've benefited from it multiple times. I've benefited in the last hour or so. Our audience, I know, so appreciates uh, you and what you've shared. Thank you for being on Growth Driver. It's my pleasure, man. Thank you for inviting me. And I, and I want to say I've learned a lot from you, too. I mean, we've Aww. known each other a while. And uh, there, there are John-isms that have worked their way into my worldview. And, and I've got very you know, great, great people who have been part of my professional life that are out there Re repeating Johnisms, not realizing where they came from. <laughs> hey man, should, we are in it together. <laughs> um, have a thank. Thank you again for your time, and uh, we will talk to you very soon. You know I will. Yeah, talk to you next time. I had a blast. I hope you did too. I want to thank you um, for spending your valuable time with us here on Growth Driver. But uh, do us a favor: follow us, subscribe, hit whatever button you need to hit, whether it's uh, on the audio or YouTube or, you know, podcast or on LinkedIn, wherever you find us. Um, thank you for, for finding us. And, and I hope you'll share it with your friends as well. Last thing I'll say is just remember, Growth Driver is brought to you by the kind and smart people at Intelligent Demand. Go check them out at intelligentdemand.com. And I will talk to you soon. Bye, everybody. Bye.